Hello and welcome to this episode of the Danish American Studies podcast. This podcast is developed and operated by students at the Center for American Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. This podcast is set on discussing the United States, its fascinating culture, its intriguing political landscape, and its socio-economic nature. We center on the United States' relations to itself and its interactions with the world around it. So, from all of us here at the Danish American Studies podcast, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Danish American Studies podcast. Today we're going to be talking about political division in the United States, uh, and we're especially going to focus on the rise of Trumpism. Uh, for this, we have special guest uh, Isaac back with us once more. We're very excited to have him. And of course, uh, we have Christopher and Casper and me, Miguel. Welcome, Isaac. With, you uh, wrote your BA on Trumpism. Perhaps you want to tell us a little bit about uh, why you were interested in it and where, 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 what, what you are bringing uh, for us here today. Sure. Thanks for having me again, guys. Um, I didn't necessarily write about Trumpism. I wrote about sort of one evolution in the, uh, the glide, glide way to Trump, you could say. Um, I wrote about Newt Gingrich, as people who listen to the BA podcast would know. Um, but yeah, so I was, I've always been interested in the question of how sort of how we got to Trump and how his ascent into the highest office of the land uh, became realized in a way or came into fruition. During our uh, BA, we had a elective about Trump in, uh, in, in the 2016 election. And one of the major questions um, that sort of uh, filled a lot in the in American media during the um, during the Trump presidency, but also leading into it was this question of what was he reaching in the American mind or the American conscious? I mean, was he appealing to racial grievances or racial resentments or was he appealing to sort of economic anxieties i mean it doesn't necessarily have to be either or but there was a large you know debate about which which elements which forces which sort of historical developments was most potent in the 2016 election um so i was really interested in that that larger debate And through that research, I kind of got really interested in the history of conservatism and the history of post-war modern American conservatism. So, you know, you could say how the conservative movement has evolved since 1964, where they nominated Barry Goldwater, um, a senator from Arizona, who was this conservative ideologue um, who voted against the Civil Rights Act. and achieved the nomination of the of the party. So, I mean, I was really interested in the evolution from him all the way up to Trump. Um, and then I looked at this one singular figure who was re- very, very important in that evolution. And that's a guy by the name of Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House and a Congress member. Um, and now is sort of a an icon within the conservative movement in the U.S., you could say. His wife was actually appointed to the to ambassador in the Vatican in, uh, in Italy. So he lived there and was sort of part of the Trump administration, you could say. And I mean, he was 
actually even discussed to, uh, about being sort of the, a possible VP candidate for Trump before he elected Pence. So it shows his his power and his sway within the conservative movement and the Republican Party. And I wanted to understand what what he had done and how he had contributed to that evolution. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because when we talk about Trump, he feels a lot in American politics nowadays. And people had this idea that he's sort of like an extreme coming out of nowhere and just basically taking over the Republican Party. But as you alluded to, there's a long history of this conservatism going further and further to the right than previously. And especially Newt Gingrich was basically the person who sort of pushed this way to the right in sort of the 90s and sort of went against it, even when the Democratic Party was also leaning sort of the right, but Bill Clinton with the new Democrat he was basically make, uh, claiming to be. So there is this idea that is Trump sort of an anomaly, or is he like the final progression of this conservative movement? What would you say to that, Isaac? Yeah, that's that's the really interesting debate that you're getting into there. And it's super complex. I mean, from my perspective, I think he is the natural product of the conservative movements, development and evolution and the path that it went down, um, not only with Gingrich, but with Ronald Reagan and with uh, other figures such as, you know, Barry Goldwater, George Wallace was obviously a Democrat, but still a conservative Democrat in the South that appealed to racial resentments. So in in my uh, analysis, and this is grounded and based on historical readings and other historians work, I can say with, with, quite, with quite a lot of certainty that he is the natural culmination of the Republican Party's evolution for decades. He's a feature, not a bug. He's not an aberration. He's not some anomaly, as you say. He is kind of, he's the apotheosis. I mean, he everything that the conservative movement, a lot of its strands came together and culminated with him. And that's why he's so popular. You see this figure. I mean, he's more popular than Ronald Reagan was uh, in amongst the Republican electorate. I mean, I think he has a 95% approval rating. And that's still... That's still the case today, guys. I mean, even after January 6th, even after the voter fraud campaign, right? I mean, that's remarkable when you think about it. I mean, it is astonishing. And he still has that type of sway. You know, you have these evangelical aspects with him that we've read about. You know, he preaches to these rallies. He's like a godlike figure to many of these. Uh, he's a folk, folk hero in a way for many conservative uh, heartland Americans. So he has all these strands that have come together and they built this, I call him the, the Frankenstein of the Republican movement in a way. I mean, uh, he's the natural product that they created. They built Jurassic Park, then the dinosaur was let loose and now they can't control it. That's my uh, metaphor. I think to, to kind of uh, build off that metaphor, uh, I'm really interested to hear you your take on how much uh, he was you know, uh, a, a product of the party and how much he was a product of the voters. Because it seems very much like they, uh, it's kind of a, a chicken and egg situation because the party kept pushing rhetoric that pushed their voters further, further to the right. But then suddenly they went for someone who was even further uh, right than the party seemed to be comfortable with, at least initially when he started running for president. It's an interesting thing of, you know, who really created him was the, who created this phenomenon? Was it the, the party or the voters? Right. 
No, that's that you're zooming in on something that's extremely interesting, Miguel. And I continuously tried to, to ask myself this because it's so easy to say, yeah, it's political elites that are pandering to the base. They're getting people enraged. You know, they're using racial resentments to appeal to them, you know, dog whistle politics, maybe even bullhorn nativism. But I mean, that's that's a tough question, man. I mean, I, I think back to the Tea Party movement in the 2010-29 uh, elections. And you have you have a clear cut example there of the base pushing the party, pushing the elite, pushing the conservative institutions towards the right. And today, I think those things have been altered a bit because you have incentives that are built into those institutions. So let's say Fox News, for instance, that's a huge institution within the conservative movement that has enormous sway, enormous influence over the party, the the voters, and the um, political elite, you could say. And that, that kind of incentivizes them to be more right-wing, to move further to the right, to become more ideological, because they have to win, win, the, uh, win the acceptance or affirmation of, the, uh, of Fox News and, you know, get interviews on Fox and so on and so forth. But I think to return to your question, you know, the Tea Party movement, you see a clear cut example in that period of the elites getting pushed by an enraged electorate. Um, and that was a confluence of forces that led to that, you know, the election of Obama, the 2008 financial crisis. You know, there's a lot of forces external and internal that lead to that. But again, I think that it is a mixture of both to, to answer it, Megal, but at the same time, be a little bit vague. You know, I think that there's a, you know, Newt Gingrich, for instance, he pandered to the base and he got them more enraged. He got the electorate more polarized, the parties more polarized by drawing up these enormous contrasts using wedge issues, you know, saying Democrats are the baby killers. Democrats are the party of communism. Uh, there are enemies, you know, these very existential binary, you know, you're drawing up the, the differences in a very stark way, and that polarizes the electorate as well. So, I mean, I think it's a mixture of, of both things. Um, I know it's a vague response, but that's, that's, that's one of the, that's like the $20 million question for many political scientists and historians, you know, who's doing the polling here, right? Yeah, so I I was just uh, I was interested in in, in how you you uh, phrased it and and seemed to imply that there is there's some forces and, and movements already present and that Trump is not necessarily the pusher he's more like a product of, of existing forces uh, and I was just wondering a lot of people and and Democrats are happy that Trump is gone now but it seems like these forces are still present in American political landscape. Do you think that in four years we would see like a re-emerging of, of a, a character like Trump or even Trump uh, as a political figure? Yeah, because those forces are so powerful and because he was able to win by appealing to those forces. So if we go back to 2012, where Mitt Romney lost, the Republican Party had what they called an autopsy report where they look at the dead body and see what was the cause of the death, right? Why did we lose this election? And the party and that autopsy, you know, in, in a fun or an ironic way, who led that? Yeah, that was Reince Priebus, Trump's first chief of staff. He made this report for the RNC, the Republican National Committee. 
And that uh, autopsy report showed that we need to find a way to appeal to young voters. We need to find a way to appeal to minority voters, Latino voters. And how do we do that? Yeah, we talk about limited government. We talk about tax cuts. We talk about uh, the bootstrap ideology, you know, the classical conservatism that you're all familiar with. Um, That was the way, that was the path to becoming a majoritarian party. Remember, Trump won in 2016 by not, you know, reaching the majority of the American electorate. He actually won with a minority of the electorate, similar to what the Democrats did in the 19th century. To return to that, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting to, to think about what the Republican Party will do now. I hate looking into the future. You know, we're all historians, so we look to the past and try to understand the, the present. But I mean, if I were to predict anything, my theory of the case is that the Republican Party is going to get more Trumpified. And we're seeing this already. You know, um, last week, I believe it was, or this weekend, we had a group of Congress members that created an America First Caucus, which said that America had sort of borders, it had a culture, and it had Anglo-Saxon political traditions, which is another way of saying that we have white supremacist political traditions in a way. Um, And that's not even a nowhere statement. I mean, as you guys know, that's a clear cut uh, dog whistle in a way. Um, And then the leader of the House or the sort of minority leader of the House for the Republican Party, Kevin McCarthy, came out and said, no, we're the party of Lincoln and so on and so forth. This classical mythic history of the Republican Party. But so I think they're con- going to continue that that way. And you see this with, you know, Matt Gates. You see this with all these Trumpist stars in the Republican Party, even guys like Tucker Carlson as well. I think to answer your question, I know it's a long response, but I think they're going to continue down this path. They could have done an autopsy report this year to return to what I talked about. But what did they choose? They made an America First caucus and Republican officials, lawmakers, fly down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the king's ring, right? I mean, so that's the way it's going right now. And that tells you a little bit about what way they're going, I would argue, at least. I would like to ask you a bit about the the kind of ideology that they are moving towards. I mean, it's it's often probably just called Trumpism, uh, but I'm I'm curious about your take on it because it seems very much uh, just a mixture of economic resentment and you know racist dog whistles and this mess of things, and then of course the personal charisma of of Trump. I mean, there seems to be no underlying ideology that drives this. So I'm really curious about your take on what is that going to mean for this move? What does this mean for the future of the Republican Party? No, I agree with you. Absolutely. There's no coherent ideology. And I don't think, let's say, let's take Trump as, a, as an example. He's not an ideologue in that way. I think he has instincts and impulses and deep, 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 deeply embedded beliefs or prejudices that he is uh shape his politics, that shape his brand of politics. But I don't think they have a coherent ideology. And that's that's really interesting that you say that, Megan, because if we look back to the 2020 election, they didn't really have a party platform. What was the party platform? 
Well, it was obedience. It was loyalty to the to the orange man, right? I mean, that was sort of the that was their focus, and he was their party platform, which was so evident in their convention speeches. I mean, it was all about Trump, and then they tried to do this law and order message that didn't really work since he was in he was the incumbent president. So it's hard to say what are the strands of Trumpism if we were to you know simmer it down to an ideologue. But I mean, when I say that I think the Trumpist forces will continue, I'm thinking about this uh, through the lens of whether to try to be a majoritarian party or whether we should try to hunker down and focus on these white working class voters. Um, I think they they want to continue down that path and continue to talk about um, immigration as a bad thing and the changing composition, demographic composition as a negative thing. Because as you all three know, that's a that's one of the larger things that we should look towards in the next decade. You know, America is getting browner um, and getting more diverse and the white majority is uh, is going to diminish both in you know political stature, but also sort of demographic. Uh, that's the worry of the party right now. I think they'll continue to be somewhat anti-free trade um, when you think about globalism, when you think about uh, the competition against China. Um, I think they they believe that's that's appealing to many Americans. And the question is whether they can continue the work of Trumpism without Trump as a figure. You said something interesting, maybe, and that is he has the brand, he has the charisma and He's built that up over time, as you all know, you know, with the apprenticeship or the apprentice, it's just called, and his, you know, mythic image as a builder, as a billionaire, um, that kind of like outsider self-made image. I think it's hard to replicate for Republican officials, especially folks who are just politicians, right? I mean, or a guy like Tucker Carlson. So, I mean, it's hard to say now whether someone can replicate his style of politics. Um, but I definitely think they'll continue to hold on to that type of politics, conspiratorial, white resentment, populist, um, you know, anti-free trade, all these aspects of it, and, and, and try to incorporate that and not return to a more moderate style of republicanism. That's just what I'm trying to say, if that makes sense. I mean, they won't sort of swing away from Trumpism and they won't, you know, embody it totally or completely. Yeah, and I think this uh, talk about sort of Trump and where the party is going, the way I sort of see it is that, and I think some of you would probably agree with me, but Trump has basically become this totally personified uh, president of the culture war. And that's basically all he is. He doesn't really talk much about politics. As you also said, mentioned, Isaac, he doesn't have an ideology. He just basically talk about cultural issues and what America should be as a country, which is for a lot of Trump voters, it should be white, it should be working class, it should not be filled with immigrants or people of color, mm. um, also in terms of gender, gays, and so on. It's all these cultural issues he's basically talking about. And what's so interesting about, and I love your Jurassic Park metaphor, because is, I think it's a good way to describe it. The way I see it is that a lot of the way the Republican Party has been built up over time is through the media, such as Fox News, which mm. basically pushed the party further and further to right. If you just take an example, as for example, Mitt Romney, who ran against Obama in 2012, like Obamacare, Fox News keep on 
talking about Obamacare and basically talking against the Affordable Care Act. But in reality, Mitt Romney had exactly the same plan, where we just called Romney Care, and even Romney, he went on and criticized Obamacare, and it was his own plan, because this Fox News narrative had basically pushed him towards this. And then suddenly a guy like Trump comes, is basically this personified of this culture war that Fox News has sort of created, and now they can't stop him anymore, because now he sort of dictates what the media should say. And then Fox News finally go against Trump as he lost the election. They start to go even more extreme media, sort of one American news, because they want to hear this, um, that Trump is correct and the election was stolen from him. Because now it's not Fox News who's setting the agenda anymore. Now it's like Trump, he has become the main man and we can't stop him anymore. As you mentioned with the Jurassic Park metaphor that now the dinosaurs lose and you can't stop it anymore. Mm. So it seems to me as when we talk about Donald Trump and where the Republican Party is headed towards is it's out of the back. They can't control it anymore. This is the Republican Party now. Yeah. And it seems like there are so many new Republicans coming into the House and into the Senate that are turned to this Trumpism that's basically like Trump. And this is the way the party is headed. Like even Ms. McConnell is starting to lose the grip on the Senate in the Republican Party. I don't know. What, what do you think about sort of like this idea with the media sort of created and now it's totally out of control? No, but those, those are some really good points. Um, I'll return to the media aspect, but you said something really, really interesting, Bob, and that was, you know, the, the you could see, you know, dinosaur metaphor that I was referring to. I mean, there's two really interesting examples that I think back to, and that is you've obviously seen the clip of John McCain where a, a lady asks him something about, you know, uh, Obama's a Muslim, you know, I'm afraid of uh, him becoming president. And McCain, you know, debunks it quickly. You know, he sort of dispels it immediately and says, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's a decent, honest family man that I happen to have some disagreements with. And you see it also on election night where McCain tries to sort of dampen his voters and say, we've lost. Let's give all our sort of uh, support to the newly elected president and so on and so forth. And he's just like booed uh, by an enormous crowd. Right. And his Vice president is standing next to him, Sarah Palin, who is this, um, you could say, prototype of Trump in a way. So that was just an example of how you could see the base getting more and more enraged. You could see the leaders getting, you know, overrun by these forces that they can't really control themselves. To return to the media aspect, definitely. So I think that's a very important part of it. And we haven't even talked about him, but Rush Limbaugh is another person who obviously pioneered a lot of this. Um, and, and Fox News, when it launched in 96 as well, they've also led, led this party down that path. And again, to what you asked about, Mikkel, I think that the conservative media industrial complex, as I call it, or the conservative ecosystem, media ecosystem, they are radicalizing both the political elite and the voters. So that's sort of a radicalization engine and it, and it propels the entire party, the entire movement to become more and more extreme. Um, let's talk about the political elite, for instance. They are incentivized to appeal to the base by going on Fox News, talking to Fox and Friends, and leaning into their highly extreme uh, beliefs, you could say, in ideology. And at the same time, you have voters who tune into these programs and become uh, you know, enmeshed in this propaganda. You know, they immerse themselves and they just become, they, they get fed with all, all these beliefs, right? 
So, I mean, this radicalization engine works both ways and it has, you know, detrimental effects uh, for both, both ends of it, I think. And, and at the same time, you have these talk radio programs. Now we have podcasts, uh, obviously. So, I mean, they are, they are helping to radicalize the party, definitely. They play a huge role in it, I think. So one of the interesting factors in, in the success of Trump has, of course, been his enablers amongst the Republican Party. We have figures like Mitch McConnell and, you know, a lot of other, other very established uh, Republican politicians who have been very much allowing him to do what he want. They've been very much falling in line. Uh, and of course, there's been cases where they've tried to tamp down on his worst instincts, but still, for the most part, they've gone along. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that they're so willing to go along with this guy who has seemingly hijacked the party from them? Yeah, it is one of the most interesting questions about what happened during the Trump presidency uh, and also the 2016 election, where you saw him uh, hijack the nomination, as you say, um, without them wanting him as the party's nominee. I mean, you had Paul Ryan at the time, who was um, in the House of Representatives, the Republican leader in the House of Representatives. And he did not want Trump as the nominee, you know, leading up to the election. I mean, we were, what was it, a month away from the election when the Hollywood Access uh, uh, tape came out? You know, he was out and said, we can't have this guy as our nomination, right? But then when he was elected, they kind of fell back and, you know, fell in line with him and listened to him. And, and I think the main reason for that, and it might seem really, really odd, but it was the politically expedient thing for them to do. I know it sounds super simple, but let me break it down a little bit. I mean, first of all, he promised things. He promised political wins for them that they would love. Let's look at, for instance, the federal judiciary. I mean, they had uh, a Supreme Court vacancy that they wanted to fill because Anthony Scalia's death, and then Merrick Garland was not allowed to become a, a, a justice. Um, so they had a vacant, vacant, vacant spot on the Supreme Court. But not only that, Trump appointed over 200 federal judges to the federal judiciary. That is power. I mean, that is remarkable. Any president dreams of doing that, right? I mean, it might not seem like a legislative win, but it's huge for social conservatives. It's huge for pro-business Republicans who are those establishment guys that you're talking about, right? I mean, Mitch McConnell, he is, he's a figure who has done probably the most to incorporate big money, dark money into American politics. He is extremely close with the Koch, with the Koch brothers. He's extremely close with all of these huge billionaire donors. I mean, you could go on a long list of Republican donors. So he has, he's done something quite interesting. And that's something that I wanted to talk about. It's called plutocratic populism. So you have Trump, who's the populist figure. He's the guy who represents the white working class voters in Ohio that, that saw their jobs leave, that feel that they are losing cultural um, status in society. He had that wing of the party in his in his hand, you could say. And on the other side, you have these establishments, establishment re Republicans led by McConnell, who 
represented pro-business, who represented the uh, the plutocrats, right? So these two things were merged together. You had cultural conservatives and you had the financial elite. And it might seem odd because those two don't really have interests that go hand in hand, right? I mean, one of the one of the factions, which is the elite, wants to exploit the working man, you could argue. Um, but they married together, and that marriage was remarkable. That managed to create sort of the foundational nits of the Republican Party. So Trump and McConnell really held together the Republican electorate through the Trump presidency because they were promised these federal judge aspects. Uh, you know, you get pro-business judges appointed to the federal judiciary. You have social conservative-oriented judges, people who want to, um, you know, tear away at Roe versus Wade, you know, the federal law that makes abortion legal. Uh, they wanted to remove that, and they wanted to remove other social conservative acts, aspects as well, anti-transgender laws they wanted to enforce, and so on and so forth. So that was kind of the appeal for them, that Trump could get them some political wins. But if we look towards the legislative wins, they also wanted tax cuts. Trump cut the corporate tax from what, what was it, 31% to 21 or 35% down to 21%. And that was something that the entire corporate America wanted to see happen, right? I mean, they want to they wanna profit more, they want to make more money, and they want to buy back stocks so they can hold on to their money, right? I mean, but that was something that Trump managed to uh, to get through and the Republicans in Congress managed to get through. So that was something that gave them a legislative win, legislative success. So I think they outweighed all the rage, all the tweets, all the racism, sexism, all the ugly aspects of Trump. They, you know, outweighed those with the legislative and sort of uh, judi judicial wins. And then they said, you know what? We have to close our eyes sometimes and then we'll get some wins out of this. That was their um, calculation. Um, but again, I don't know if it helped them in the long run, but they got a lot of federal appointments and they got a tax cut through and that was what, what the establishment wanted to see happen. But the interesting, was, the interesting part was that you saw throughout the Trump presidency, you saw Republican lawmakers, senators walk through the halls where, you know, reporters ask them, what do you think about the latest tweet? What do you think about the latest tweet? And they had to sort of in shame say, I haven't seen it or I don't know what you're talking about. So they really had to like close their eyes in front of the entire world throughout the Trump presidency just to get those small wins out of it. I think it's very interesting that, that you sort of uh, you talk about this marriage between the the economic aspects or the economic interests and and the cultural conservative aspects and and see how there is both a face of Trumpism or and tr the Trump Party the Trump Republican Party there's also some underlying structures which were implemented I mean without people even realizing I mean it's not everyone knows that he appointed. Uh, over 200 federal judges in this structure. And maybe even in the future, we will start to see the economic effects and legacy of four years of Trump. 
what is the future American that, I mean, you said before that you're not keen on, on elaborating on the future or predict the future, but I mean, it, it sets up some very um, bleak and, and dep- I mean, interesting structures that, that, that might change the America we used to see. Yeah, you're so right. And I forgot to mention something about that, Casper, which you, uh, which you correctly remind me of now. These guys, federal judges, they sit for life just for all Danish listeners. And not only did he appoint three or sort of a 200, over 200 uh, federal uh, judges, he appointed three Supreme Court justices. That's the most important part that I completely forgot about, right? Um, you had Neil Gorsuch, you had um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and then, then you had Amy Coney Barrett right before the election, right? So, I mean, they sit for life and they shape America for generations to come. As you alluded to, Casper, uh, that's, that's power and that's enormous you know, influence. And that influences America in, in ways that, that, that our children will, will see someday, right? I mean, so that's, that's huge. Um, and I think for Trump, he understood that that, that, that that leads him to hold on to these social conservative voters. So it's not only the elite that's getting what they want, it's also social conservatives in the South that want to see abortion repealed. That, what, what do I say? That, that don't want to see more sort of uh, liberal ideas come to life in the U.S. Um, they want culturally conservative um, values embedded into American society. So in that sense, I mean, that was extremely, you know, expedient for him politically because he was able to appeal to these evangelical voters, which we all know are uh, a very important part of the American electorate. I think over 40% of the American electorate are evangelicals, which tells you a little bit about, I mean, Trump's approval rating never really got over 50, but it was never really under 40, which tells you he has enormous sway over these voters, despite him being married three times and talking about grabbing women by the you know what, and all this stuff, right? I mean, he's the most a-religious politician I've seen in, yeah, forever, probably. We, we talked a bit about how the, you know, long that this, that the Republicans slowly have weird further and further right, and some of the influences behind that. But I think one of the interesting things uh, brought up was how that they often framed themselves as in opposition to the Democrats being, you know, communists and socialists. But that's, uh, I think it's very interesting because recently, well, as recent as 2016 and going forth, there's been a growing movement of Democrats moving further left. Uh, it's much more recent and it's not nearly as large a part of their, you know, uh, of the electorate as, as on the, as the Republicans moving right, but still it's happening. And part of that has been them sort of destigmatizing socialism for a lot of Americans. There's a recent poll that showed that uh, of young people between 18 and 30, 70% said that they would be willing to vote for a politician who identified as socialist. That's a huge change, mm. huge, absolutely massive. Yeah. So what I'm really interested to hear from you is if you think that this continual fear-mongering of socialism and communism, is it going to be continue to be as effective as it has been for the Republican Party in the future? Because it seems like that might actually be changing, that that not, might not be the, the big specter anymore that it w- once was. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think a lot about that, Nick. I mean, because I think the younger generation of Americans don't associate communism with um, what boomers may associate communism with. I mean, the Cold War, when you think of that, when you think of the Soviet Union, when you think about, uh, you know, the Castro regime, all these different um, signifiers in the American mind have always led to this red scare, as we're familiar with. Um, and that's kind of dissipating or it's like fading out in a way. Um, America has always enjoyed like the, the binary setup of liberty and freedom versus communism. And I think many younger Americans are looking towards Denmark, for instance, or Scandinavia at large and European, uh, Europe at large and thinking, wow, you can actually mix some social welfare, some social democracy with a capitalist society. So it's not this binary either or worldview any longer. I think that's uh, fading out. And I think that's um, clearly shown in that poll that you, that you mentioned, which is absolutely remarkable. But I mean, th that's my theory of the case. I may be wrong because the conservatives have done this for decades, right? I mean, they are uh, well-versed in using communism as a cudgel against their political uh, opposition. But it's hard for me to foretell what will happen in the next decade or so. But as you say, you have AOC, for instance, you have um, Pramaya Jayapal, you have a bunch of progressive Democrats who are very, very good at dodging these communist labels and sort of socialism labels. But um, I mean, the, the Republicans are still running on it. If tune in to Fox News tonight and you'll see numerous anchors sit and talk about that the Democrats want to make America socialist. So I think they'll continue to hold on to that type of um, to that, that type of sort of cudgel or weapon. But um, but it's hard to say if it'll dissipate. I think the the new talking point may be something about the, like the demographic evolution. As you may have seen lately, Republicans are talking about the Democrats want to replace the current white electorate with more favorable immigrants um, coming into the country, which is remarkably nativist and racist, right? But I mean, that's the new talking point, I think. That's kind of this idea of um, Democrats undermining white Americans' status in American society by bringing in immigrants or bringing uh, darker people into the fold. And you see this with this voter suppression campaign that Republicans have been running since they lost in the 2020 election. So those are kind of structural mechanisms or ways in which they're oper operationalizing this idea of America becoming darker. I think that's the new fear. I don't know if you guys can be right about that. Um, that's just a theory, I guess. Well, I, I, first, I want to add on to uh, what you said earlier about how it, it, they're still you know, hitting at him with the socialist and communist cudgel. And I think uh, the most surprising success, or perhaps not surprising, but the, the most remarkable uh, success they've had with that re uh, was in the 2020 election, where they really grew their percentage of uh, Latino voters, like a lot of Cuban immigrants and other immigrants from countries that had a history of authoritarian socialist regimes. They, they've really been the ones who kind of been willing to go to the Republicans, at least in certain areas.
right. uh, which has been an interesting uh, way for them to expand their electorate, of course. Mm -hmm. But I also think you're definitely right about them sort of moving in a, in a direction where they are more willing to use race openly, mm -hmm. uh, or at least semi-openly, uh, as a way of, of, you know, agitating their voters. Right. Most prominently, I think it's uh, it's really interesting. I think that the, the, the thing that really jumps to mind is this quote that it's more scary for white Americans to be called a racist than actually being racist. It's more shameful to be called it than being it. Yeah. And I think that really shows the new mentality they have towards it. It's okay to be racist and all these things as long as you do it in the right way, as long as you're not too open about it. And I really think that's really been something that's been on the rise. And I think you definitely can see it in the, the conservative media. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's a way of being racist, but at the same time, having some plausible deniability, if you guys know what I mean by that. Like, you can always put up a kind of shade that um, disables your opposition to say, well, wait a minute, that's a little bit racist. Or wait a minute, you're, you're using nativism to appeal to racially aggrieved voters. I mean, isn't that, isn't that something we want to stop doing? But in a way, they can, they can manage to hold those things simultaneously, you know, uh, say that you're not a racist, but at the same time, use racism or weaponize racism to your own, to your own advantage. I totally agree. And that's one of the elements I worked on in my BA, which basically the term I'll call this is sort of laissez-faire racism, where it's basically the idea that as long as you are not overtly racist, sort of as a KKK racism or like old slave racism, you're not racist. And like one of the best examples, I don't remember what her name is, but there's a case um, when Trump, he first was elected back in 2016, there was a, a um, worker and a municipalitol who basically wrote, I think it was on her Facebook or Twitter, but it would be nice to, to now have a dignified first lady instead of that ape in heels, her quote. And like, as soon as, as of course, there came a lot of backlash on it and it was extremely racist. Of course, he came up, no, 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 it's not racist, not racist. I, I, it was just a joke. I don't mean it by that. And that's exactly what Megal says. You can always excuse it as a joke or you didn't mean it in this way. And you're more scared of actually being called a racist than actually being one. And right. That's super, and the scary thing about Trump is that he says a lot of these things just as everybody else is. And that's also why there's a lot of Trump supporters who basically come out and say that they like him because he first of all says as it is, and he also says what we are thinking. Yeah. So it's sort of like emphasizing this aspect that they're not now allowed to say it without feeling bad about it. But that's the thing, like just to return to what we talked about in terms of where, where do we go from here? Um, because Trump you know, uh, emboldened racists. I mean, he let them say the stuff or believe the stuff that, that you're referring to. The natural um, glide path from that is obviously to embolden more racists, to introduce more overt racism again. You won't return to more sugar-coated racism after that. I mean, that doesn't really, that, that, there's no logical path that leads to that it leads to people being more emboldened, emboldened and expressing their beliefs more sort of unabashedly, right? Yeah. And you, and, you, and you see this with all the videos on Twitter and Facebook that Danes are like, holy cow, how can they be so racist where people are yelling at each other on the street or 
telling Mexicans speak English in the in the taco store and all these awful videos that you see. That that's because of the of the guy at the top. I mean, leadership matters, right? Uh, and the way we speak, the way we use discourse matters an awful lot. Yeah, I, th I find very interesting the, the discussion we're having right now about the emboldenment of racism and this that it's become acceptable in a way to be racist but not be called a racist idea but but i was just interested or curious to hear about uh, your point on on the whole the whole georgia decision to to sort of uh, restrict voting or at least make it harder for people to to vote with the implementation i don't know if it, what it's exactly called but the sort of a rule that you can't provide water and food to voters in areas which predominantly harm uh, people of color, um, and I would I would like to sort of tie this to the to the marriage that we talked about with the economic interest and the cultural interest, um, because it seems like there's this decision has made a sort of uh, a cut or a, a divergence of economic and cultural interest that a lot of companies decided to 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 leave uh, Georgia. Uh, and take their uh, jobs and, and, and money with them. And all of a sudden you had Mitch McConnell say that uh, money had no uh, place in politics, uh, or at least they should not interfere in, in politics. It seems like there's become a, a split with this opening uh, of racism or opening of racially motivated politics and policy making. How do you how do you interpret it on this? No, you're absolutely right, Casper, and that's a really interesting aspect uh, that's going on right now. This, I mean, it's becoming a kind of part of the culture wars that the Republicans are saying that you know these um, companies, corporations are they're conceding to the liberal woke mob or something like that, right? Or the um, yeah, the wokeness of the Democratic Party and all this stuff. Um, but in a way, I think corporations function quite logically and they see that you know the electorate is the sentiments are changing after the death of George Floyd I think a lot of Americans um, had this kind of like realization that wow we still have a lot of structural uh, systemic inequities in our in our society and we need to do something about that and voter suppression has been going on for centuries right I mean it, it has been with us since the founding of America but um, the uptick in all these um, attempts to curtail or curb voting rights since the 2020 election has led many to think, okay, wow, why, why can that be? I mean, it was not an election that was mired in fraud. In fact, it was one of the most secure elections in, in, in history. And they see a natural outcome as we're in Georgia and in many other states, you had a large portion of African-Americans helping Biden win, um, both, uh, you know, in the Atlanta area, um, where they perhaps, I mean, led to Biden's election and led to the two senators who won and gave Democrats control of the Senate. So the black vote was decisive. And I think Republicans are aware of that. Um, and they want to curb voting rights in a way um, and, and, and in doing so, you, you see that in Atlanta or in Georgia, you see it in many other states as well. 
Um, and then you see uh, Mitch McConnell say what he said, which is kind of incongruent with his former stance, which is uh, corporations are individuals, thus they have free speech, which is the entire premise of the Citizen United ruling in 2010 in the Supreme Court, um, which enabled companies to spend as much money as they want on political campaigning. So on the one hand, he wants companies to spend a lot of money and a lot of money that goes unnoticed with what we call dark money, where they don't have to have a name attached to the money. And on the other side, he doesn't want them involved in Republican efforts to curb voting rights. Um, he was very angry that the Major League Baseball League moved their all-star game out of Atlanta. He was very mad at huge uh, Georgia brands such as Coca-Cola, Delta, and a couple of others that I'm not familiar with, they kind of condemned these efforts uh, to curtail the vote, especially the one that you mentioned, Casper, with not letting uh, vote, what's it called, uh, poll workers deliver food and, um, and beverages to people in line, which, is, which, which doesn't really make sense. But the reason for that was they said that then no one could be kind of uh, influenced to vote a certain way. So let's say there was activists or organizers, campaigners giving out drinks, labels and stuff like that. And then they could influence voter behavior, which kind of makes sense. But at the same time, these voters have free will, right? I mean, they can stand in line and get influenced by people. That's a part of politics. So that, that really um, got a lot of attention. The bill in Atlanta, which was also uh, stunning to see those white men stand around a table with a picture or a painting of a historic or notorious plantation in the, in the back. Uh, it was fascinating as a historian to look at that, but also very tragic. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is going on nationwide. I mean, it's happening in states all over the country, and it has been doing so for a very, very long time. That, that, that's my thoughts on that, I think. Yeah, I mean, 22 different states are all looking at, you know, introducing laws similar to what they introduced in Georgia. It's not a unique thing at all. And I think, in, in fact, to expand on that, you can even uh, talk about the new laws that were introduced in Florida and Oklahoma just uh, these past couple of weeks, uh, which was, you know, set up as anti-riot laws, but which essentially makes punishing protest incredibly easy. I mean, both of them make it legal that if protesters block the road, you can run into them, you can hit them with your car, and you're legally protected from any consequences. And a lot of what it also does is up a lot of misdemeanors uh, connected to riots and protests into felonies. And if you have a felony, you can get your voting restricted in a lot of states, which essentially means that they will make it easier the, the, because the difference between a protest and a riot is very fluid. And it often goes from one to the other once the police arrives and starts, you know, trying to tangle with this uh, with this protest. Tear gas That's, kids and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. So what's really interesting, I think, is that not only are they, you know, making some very alarming decisions about legal protection for people 
which, you know, that in itself is bad enough. But the fact that they can then also use those people who are, who are caught or who are arrested for these things to restrict their voting rights. And in the Oklahoma bill, I know it, I don't know if it's also in the Florida bill, they're even, they could even be prevented from ever holding public office or public employment even. Because yeah, that will mean a lot of, you know, organizers, a lot of public figures who go out and do this can suddenly lose their ability to actually enter politics. Uh, not, not, not to uh, interrupt, but I assume these are Republican-led. Um... Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, okay. it's, it's amazing that they can, you know, this is something they can go out and really sell to people as being especially good in for light, them. Especially in light of the January 6th uh, riot or insurrection. I mean, we haven't even addressed that. That was, that was also another interesting aspect of conservatism because as we've uh, learned a lot about in what course is that this year i guess it's conspiracy no wait pardon me it is uh, communicating american studies where we've learned a lot about these there's a continuity there as well this anti-democratic violence is a huge part of american history and you know you all know this from reconstruction obviously from uh, the slave fugitive act all these different uh, periods also the civil rights period uh, the segregated south you saw a lot of violence there as well but another thing that i wanted to mention in terms of this conservative um, movement talk that we're having is there's a long long standing tradition of reactionary minoritarianism in the us this idea that a small minority is, you know, God has the God-given right to rule. And that goes back all the way to the founding. I mean, the Senate is built into the system that way. Um, the two, what, what is it, the slave two-third two clause? I mean, that that is another aspect of it where you're three-fifths clause, my bad. Oh, that's embarrassing. Um, yeah, but um, that as well is another aspect of it. Um, the segregated South as well, Reconstruction, and then you had the the riot on January 6th. I mean, there's a long tradition of that. Um, I can really recommend a great historian by the name of Rick Perlstein, who's written about the conservative movement. And that's his argument, or that has been his argument since January 6th, that this is, this is another chapter in that history. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to sort of end the discussion that with a recommendation if you want to read more about it and it's an interesting discussion we could talk for in hours at length because America, this is not over America is still in this divided and we don't know where it's going and the fact that there's so much support behind the January 6th wires in the in the DC and, this, and the House and Senate just shows that America is deeply divided and Trumpism isn't going anywhere soon 45% of Republicans um, in, endorse the riot or the insurrection. And that's absolutely insanity because it's literally tearing down democracy. And for me, it basically shows American democracy is in danger at the moment. Um, it's very fragile at the moment. So I would just like to thank you again, Isaac, for joining us with the discussion. It has been super fruitful again. and. It's always nice to have you in this podcast because we always have some interesting discussions. Thanks for having me, guys. And uh, I would love to be back at some point, if possible.